This is the Plucked Chicken Podcast. Well, I am delighted today to be joined in studio by Pastor Daniel Ross. Pastor Ross is a colleague of mine. He pastors right down the road here in Topeka, Kansas. And one of the great things about Daniel is the fact that the Lord called him out of his evangelical melu, just like he called me. Uh, Daniel, real quick, you grew up, uh, what, what branch of Christianity? I was baptized Presbyterian. And I uh, went there up until about middle school and then went to a United Methodist Church. And then what is it that made you start to investigate the Lutheran distinctives? Uh, long story short, my, my parents started attending a Lutheran church when I was in college. And, you know, me being a early 20s, said, hey, why don't you come to church with us? I said, okay, what, what time's church service? And my mom said 8 o'clock in the morning. I'm like, oh, okay, you know, mom, come on. But... Uh, just was really interested. It was completely foreign to me. I had not gone to liturgical services when I was a, a Methodist, so it, it was it was really foreign, but I, I liked the preaching and was going through the membership class, and, and the one problem that I always had in the Presbyterian Church and in, in the Methodist Church was, was communion. I, I could understand how you could take it metaphorically. It just never seemed to jive, and so I didn't know really a lot about other churches, so in the adult membership class, when the pastor's going over and he's explaining communion, it's like, this is the first time that this actually makes sense with what I find in Scripture. And from that point on, I was I was sold. Like, I didn't know this existed. That's great. Well, thanks be to God that he was able to use that, uh, that pastor in that catechesis class and draw you to, well, really the truth. And so um, I know that you and I have talked before. You like listening to evangelical sermons. You get uh, just as frustrated as, as I do when I, listen, when I listen to them. Yours primarily, don't you? You listen through a lot of, through the radio. Yes, I, I listen primarily through the radio. You said I, I like to listen to sermons. If you mean screaming at the, uh, the person on the radio that, that can't hear me, the places they leave their people at, then, then yes, I like to listen right. to, to evangelical sermons. Right. It's just a hobby, I guess, and part of it is just this is also what my people are hearing when they turn on their radios, and so it helps me to kind of understand maybe some of the things that they ask questions about. And you're a preacher, too. I mean, you spend time not only in the text, but you spend time thinking through how to communicate this. You spend time in how to use law and gospel, and so when you listen to the evangelical sermons, you know they have no concept of law and gospel. I would assume that you don't spend a lot of time, uh, because really as a Lutheran pastor, you don't have a lot of time, so it really does have to be your best stuff, so to speak. You don't spend a lot of time speaking about stories about yourself or when you grew up. or I mean, you could use something like that to initially get you into the text, but for the most part, when an evangelical sermon is, say, 45 minutes, which is very typical, uh, you hear a bunch of fluff. And so you and I have talked about this sermon that we're getting ready to review before. This guy is actually a guest pastor at this church, and he's a pastor down in Florida, but he's up in North Carolina filling in for the pastor that's out of town. And I was listening to it and really was just going to, uh, you know, throw it off the table until he got around to talking about the Lord's Prayer. Now, I would assume growing up Presbyterian and even maybe into your Methodism days, you know, in the evangelical church, they don't pray the Lord's Prayer. 
at all. It's too Roman. It's not spur of the moment, spirit filled. You know, the, the word can't be the written word can't be spirit filled. And it's just like the, the written word is the word of God. Well, you want to tell me that that's not spirit filled? OK, I heard a prayer just the other day. It was at a really, really nice classical Christian school here in town. And that was for their musical. And the musical was great. But the guy got up at the very beginning and uh, he talked about how stressful Christmas can be. Then when he went to pray, he asked the Lord to help us all relax. Just help us to relax and to capture the magic of Christmas. The magic of Christmas. (laughs) By the way, I I just love that, right? The the magic of Christmas. I mean, remember, what what is magic, right? Magic is witchcraft. And and I realize he's not using that in in this context. But but still, when people say the magic of Christmas, I'm like, do you mean the holy divineness of the the son who who everything was made through him coming into our flesh? Totally non-magical, super divine, godly thing? Right. (laughs) You mean all these things that happened in time and space in history that are taken as facts? That's the magic? And, and it was not us trying to manipulate God, but God just doing it purely out of his His love, which is the complete opposite, again, of uh, witchcraft and, and magical practice. Well, let's get into this sermon here because I really feel like we've got a lot to discuss. Come on, can you give Jesus your best praise this morning? Come on, he's worthy of it. Come on, give Jesus your best praise. Amen. We do that at our church every week, and we tell people we're not just trying to get you to hoop and holler when we do that. There's a reason we're trying to get you excited. Do you understand that joy is a weapon? I, I hate to disagree with this guy right off the bat, but but um, asking people to start hooping and hollering, basically, is asking people to start hooping and hollering and get get excited. And and we, we cut him off before he, I, I, I guess he's going to explain what, how joy is a, is a weapon there. But, you know, the preaching is a holy task and it's not something to take lightly. And it does help to have people in a good mood. A receptive audience always is, is a good thing. But this guy, I mean, if he wants a hype man, get a hype man and, and don't be preaching because the, the, this is not public speaking. This isn't a, a, a concert or something like that. TED Talks don't even do this. No, no, they, they don't. Quite honestly, it, it's demeaning, I think, to, to the task of, of preaching because you're taking the, the word of God. I mean, the task of the preacher is, is to go to Scripture and, and take Scripture and bring it to the people in a way that, that it makes sense the people can relate to it basically right like so nathan when he confronts david gives the the example of the sh- you know the sheep the, the the rich man the poor man and david's like oh okay we're gonna that guy deserves death and then nathan's like yeah you're that dude david and then it hits david like this is what i did oh my gosh right that that's the task of the of the preacher does not to hype people up and then say, hey, I'm not just trying to hype you up. It's a manipulation technique, no doubt. It is. It's, it's pure enthusiasm. This is one of the things that not only was I an enthusiast as an evangelical pastor, but I was also training members of my congregation to be enthusiasts as well. And I had been trained by the best to be an enthusiast. And so when I started to read Luther, and he is talking about enthusiasm and how this is looking for the God within, mm-hmm. man, you talk about Nathan coming to David and being convicted. I was so convicted, the same finger, so to speak, pointed at me and said, you're the man. 
Could you explain just a little bit more about enthusiasm? Enthusiasm is really kind of, it's emotionalism. You know, the, the, the theological term is, is enthusiasm, but, but it's emotionalism. It is it's trying to get people to this place of feel-goodedness, so to speak, purely through emotional manipulation, not, not through Scripture. This is not the proclamation of the gospel that brings peace. This is me intentionally manipulating you into doing certain things or uh, thinking certain things, which a good public speaker can do, by the way. I shouldn't say that it's a bad thing, but when it comes to preaching, it is a bad thing. Because you're breaking the second commandment. And it drives the person to themselves instead of to the word of God. You know, the comfort of, of our peace comes from the fact that God declares us righteous. Even though we're sinners, God declares us forgiven. It is objective. It is outside myself. Because the thing about it is, is if I'm just looking for emotional things, well, as we're recording this, it is cloudy outside. It is cold. The wind is going to pick up throughout the day. It's going to get colder. And if I were just to take my emotions with how God, you know, loves me, by the end of this day, I'm going to be thinking like, God really hates me. Because I'm sorry, I hate cold, windy, cloudy weather. I don't know a lot of people that do like it. John Bruss. He's a weird duck. (laughs) In fact, he might just be a goose. (laughs) So emotionalism or or enthusiasm is this driving the people to, um, it's a manipulation of somebody's emotions. So the, the classic enthusiast is John Edwards, right? Sinners in the hands of an angry God. Um, but, but John Edwards, you you know, the, the kind of one of the big guys during the revivalist tent movement, he, he said, Hey, look, you don't have to follow this pattern, but this is the pattern that I follow. And the whole thing that he laid out for preachers to do was to bring people to a, an emotional point and then make the decision for Christ. I think that was Charles Finney. Or was that Charles Finney? My bad. But nonetheless, I mean, he is the one who set up, had the rule book, so to speak, for this is how you manipulate a congregation to get them to make decisions mm-hmm. for Jesus Christ. Yeah, the thing about that is, is that's not the Word of God. I mean, that, that's not that's not Scripture. It's not emotional manipulation. It is the preaching of the law, which crushes us, and to the crushed, contrite, repentant sinner, the preaching of the gospel, which uplifts us, cons- uh, consoles us, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. It, it is not the emotional manipulation so that people make an emotional decision, which tomorrow could be gone. You would even see this in the Old Testament scriptures where the true prophets of God would mock what the false prophets of God were saying, where they would say, peace, peace, where there is no peace. A lot of times you will find false prophets saying things that are not true, but it makes everybody feel okay, whereas the true prophet comes along, he speaks the truth of God, and he gets stoned. Yeah, because nobody wants to hear hard news. Nobody wants to hear that I am a poor, miserable sinner when somebody else can sit there and tell me, hey, God wants you to have your best life now. And if you want that Mercedes, you just need to tell God, I declare that I will have this Mercedes. And you're not being facetious when you say this. The church that you're referencing, just this one church, Joel Osteen's church, it is the largest church in America. Yeah, like, what, 30,000 on a Sunday? Oh, I thought it was up in the 50s. Oh, it might be higher. I, I don't know. All I know is it's a, it's a former NBA stadium. Everybody wants to hear the, the good stuff. 
um, and, and nobody wants to hear the bad stuff. The problem is, is it's only when we realize that we're a miserable sinner and can stand convicted by the Holy Spirit that we also get to hear the words of Christ. It is finished. Today you'll be with me in paradise. You know, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. It is only after the conviction of the law that we get to hear the sweet, sweet words of the gospel. And that's what you're saying we should hoop and holler over. Yes. That's when he should be like, hoop and holler. And don't just do it for hoop and holler, but do it because you are forgiven of all the wretchedness that you are. Says the, the Bible says that the joy of the Lord is our strength. So joy is a weapon. And so I want you to be joyful when you come in here. I'm surprised when we come into church, man, and you will lose your absolute mind at a sporting event. That person will never put value in your life, never going to come see you in the hospital when it's time to be prayed for, never know your name, but you'll lose your mind for them, and you'll come in church and sit on your hands and do nothing. You probably want to pick up on something different, Pastor Ross. But the thing that I want to pick up on is the whole sitting on your hands and doing nothing. The Lutheran liturgy is designed so that you would do just that, mm-hmm. sit on your hands and do nothing. The old Adam, the old man in us, wants to be very active. It wants to be clapping and shouting and jumping pews and thumping our Bible and all of that. It, it wants to be active, whereas... The Lutheran liturgy, and probably not just Lutheran, the idea is for you to actually sit down and do nothing except receive, Mm -hmm. where everything comes to you from the outside. The Scripture comes to you from the outside. The sacraments come to you from the outside. The preaching of the Word of God comes to you from the outside. All you can do is open your empty hands of faith and grab hold of these things. I'm reminded of how the disciples are getting ready to eat. Jesus girds a towel. He goes around and starts washing feet. Peter is totally put off by this. You are not supposed to do this. I'm supposed to work for you. Jesus says, if you don't let me do this, you have no part in me. That right there is is the essence of receiving what the Lord wants to give as opposed to thinking like the evangelical does, that I'm the one who always has to, to work and the, always the one who has to be on the treadmill, so to speak, of their spiritual life. I find that really interesting where he's dogging the people for receiving and saying that that is a, it's a bad thing. Notice Peter's response when, when Jesus says, unless uh, you let me do this, you have no part of me, then not just my feet, but my head and my hands also. And, and Jesus, it, that's the enthusiastic response. Well, if I'm going to receive this, I give it all to me, Jesus, right? right? And Jesus' response is, no, just the feet, Peter. J- j- just the feet, man. That, that, that's the deal. That, that's all you need is, is the feet washed. I, I wouldn't say that our liturgy is, is just to sit down, sit on your hands, but it's it's call and response. And so you are active. You're just not jumping up and screaming with right. what they say with our, uh, losing our absolute minds. Uh, yeah. Yeah. You know, you're not you're not hooping and hollering. You're not not losing your absolute mind because partly Paul writes about one of the overriding concerns of worship in the church is good order. So everybody knows what is going on so that everybody can be taught what they need to hear that day, the, the word of the Lord that day. And so, you know, everybody just screaming and losing their minds the entire time at church is not going to be effective. 
there, there's this order, and it's call and response. And what is it call and response to? It's call and response of God's word. It is receiving those things um, while you're while you're speaking God's word, while you're hearing God's word, and and, and it's great because um, it, in essence, the congregation is also ministering to to the preacher and that call and response too. And and a lot of people forget that that the, the pastor is is there to hear the word of God also, to hear the words of forgiveness also. This this idea that that joy is our strength, and so therefore a weapon. I have no idea where he gets that from because that's just. You know, the joy of our Lord is our strength. That doesn't mean it's a weapon. Just because something's your strength isn't a weapon. If you're a good listener, if that's your strength, your weapon is not listening to people. All right? It, it just it does not follow. Um, it, it's just the joy of our Lord is our, is our strength means the forgiveness of sins that God declares of us through Jesus Christ is our strength. That's what we rest our hat on. When Satan comes to us and says, you think God really loves you enough? You think you're really, really forgiven? You think you're really, really going to heaven? Yeah. We, we get to sit there and say, this is what the Lord has declared of me. That even though I am a miserable sinner, yet he has forgiven me of my sins. And, and so I do have everlasting life in Christ. I do have the resurrection promised to me in Christ. And and so Satan, take those ugly accusations and um grab the inkwell and throw it at Satan because that's that's basically all all he all he really needs. So this guy's saying that joy is the hooping and hollering. No, no, no. Go go beyond below the words. What he is saying is is if you are not happy, if you are not losing your mind, then you're not really loving God. Ugh. And you're not really listening and understanding his word. That's what he just told them of, and they're cheering for it. So he's condemned them within the first he's come, 10 seconds. He's, he's come out. He's, he's done what American evangelicalism often does, and, and it blows my mind that, that people don't, don't realize this. He's come out and taken something that's supposed to be gospel and sneakily turned it into the law. And unless... You come from a background, a non-evangelical background. You're not going to recognize it because you've been told that this is the gospel for so long. So what is the gospel? Being obedient to God is, is basically what it comes out to. Being obedient to God is not the gospel. The forgiveness of sins is, is the gospel. Being obedient to God is the law, either in the first or second use or in the third use. It's all law. And he basically just came out and said, if you are not losing your mind, you go out, you lose your minds at these sporting events, but then you come into God's house and you don't lose your mind. How dare you? Oh, my goodness. You guys are just horrible, horrible people. And they're cheering. And I'm saying we're coming into the presence of the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings, the one who has done everything for us. I'm going to get a little crazy and lose my mind for Jesus at times. All right. So that's what I want you to do this morning. That's what we're here for. Hey, uh, we're so grateful to be here with you guys this morning. Uh, we bring you greetings from Tampa, Florida and Limitless Church. Uh, we're in the healthiest season our church has ever experienced in the last year. We have grown. We have doubled and a half in the last year. God's doing something crazy in our church and moving. And so every win we have is a win for you guys. So every win we have is, is a win for you. And wins only equate to growth of our church. Yep. Now, I, I can't speak for his church. I don't know the numbers, but, but what I know is statistically mega churches grow by taking members from other churches. This is true. There's been a lot of research into that. So he's basically said we're in the healthiest season. We've doubled and a half, which is amazing if 90% of that 
is from unchurched people. It is depressing as, as a mid to small church pastor to hear that and realize that statistically probably you just took a whole bunch of other people's from other people's pews and, and you're sitting there going, look at the kingdom work we're doing when all you're really doing is, is sheep stealing. That's correct. And that does not expand the kingdom of God. And, and then not only that, to, to equate church health only to membership numbers is, is very, very bad because he's basically just condemned every church that is declining, which is 99% of churches in America, especially in rural America, because just populations are declining. God is on the move in and around me, and yeah. he's not on the move near you. Yeah. He took this from, we're here to praise and worship our amazing God to, by the way, here's all the amazing work that I'm doing, and um, I'm just a great guy. You should you should, you should listen to me because here's the here's what I'm doing. I'm, I'm sheep stealing all these, all these people. Man. They don't realize they're doing this. And, That's and, correct. And, and so it's like, I can't condemn him too much. I can't sit there and say, you are just a horrible person, which is what I want to do. But he doesn't know what he's doing. I'm going to start yelling, so we should continue. Because you encourage us and you pray for us and you sent us out to go do the Lord's work in Tampa. And so thank you for that. Thank you for loving us, encouraging us. I want to take a moment. I want to honor my pastors, Tim and Harriet Blevins. We would not be who we are or still standing if it was not for them, for their love for us, for their constant encouragement. Come on, church. Do you love your pastors? Can you give them some prayer? Come on, church. Can you give your pastors some honor this morning? Thank you for them. We also want to welcome you to the Portable Church game. Come on, somebody. Yeah. We've been portable churching for almost four years. That's how God intended it. The tabernacle moves, so you got to take it with it. Oh, this is like listening to some sort of junior high kid. I just want to bang my head on the table. You know, Jesus, Mary, Joseph, and all the saints be praised. What in the name is portable church? I've, I've never heard of that before. Portable church. I mean, that, that makes it sound like... Okay, guys, we're going camping. Better pack up the church and bring it with us. Well, I'll tell you exactly what it is. It is a trailer that is loaded with all of the sound equipment and all of the pipe and drape and all of the lighting and a plexiglass pulpit that uh, some very dedicated folk get there early in the morning and start setting up a, a gymnasium or an auditorium and they start bringing in all of their all of their stuff, just like uh, like it was a concert, you know, some roadies. And then what happens is, after the service is over, those same dedicated folks they put everything back back in the trailer. So it's it's the accoutrements of the building of a church. Okay. Sure. All right. I get. That. I've just never heard the term portable church, but the church is supposed to be portable, as in the tabernacle. He is aware that at some point in history, they went from a tabernacle, which was portable, but it didn't actually move anywhere once it came into the promised land. It was kind of pretty much in the same. They built a temple and the tabernacle stopped moving because they didn't need the tabernacle. And the Ark of the Covenant was in the temple and everything inside the tabernacle was in the temple. Oh, come on, man. You you got to go with the flow a little bit. You got to you got to loosen up. I'm going to let me pray a prayer. Lord, just let Pastor Ross relax and enjoy the magic of this sermon. <laughs> when it's raining, when it's sunshine, when it's cold as all get out, you still got to set it up and tear it down. And you do it with joy cuz you go, 
Somebody better give their life to Jesus today because it's hot out here. All right? People are in the parking lot sweating it up. You're like, you better give somebody better give their life to Jesus because it's hot. Right? In Florida, that's what it feels like. People are serving that coffee like, why are we serving coffee? It's 112 degrees out here. Right? It's hot. But you do it. And it's exciting. Look, I believe it's the greatest way the church should act. Because we get comfortable inside these four walls at times. And you need to know that churches in a building are a location. We are the church. We carry the power of the Holy Spirit, so enjoy that. But let me encourage you with something. I want to back up my pastor. One of our core values at Limitless Church is servant leadership is our calling. We tell people this. If you're too big to serve, then you're too small to lead. Everyone serves. Everybody's all in. And generosity is our culture. It's another one of our core values. Generosity, we're going to be generous. And my pastors don't know this, but Limitless Church is sewing into what God's doing here this morning. We believe in what God's doing. We believe in the portable church. Let me tell you something. If you sat here today and you said, I'm just not sure if I should give. I'm not just so sure if I should serve. Let me tell you something. Do it. Do it. God blesses that. You are sowing into fertile ground, to good ground here. Look, we need everybody in the game. All the way from Tampa, we're in the game with you. We're believing in you. We're behind you. All right, church? So come on, let's get behind that this morning. Let's get behind it. Church, do you believe your best days are ahead? Your best days are ahead of you. Your best is yet to come. You know, Pastor Ross, I kind of do believe that my best days are ahead of me. I really do. But not like he thinks it. I think it's going to happen on the last day when my dead carcass is raised out of the ground and reunited with my soul and I have a glorified body and stand in the new heavens and the new earth. That's my best day. Yeah, but that doesn't uh, get people to give you money. Oh, right. You know, what gives people to get you money is to emotionally manipulate them and say, hey, look, you, you see all this horrible stuff that's going on in the world. You hear the news, how the church in Europe, the church in uh, North America is is shrinking. But I'm here to tell you that, that the best is just in the future, man. All you got to do is just, just trust God. Just trust God. By the way... His core values could be summed up by just simply saying, uh, we believe in discipleship. That's not trendy. You can't make a poster out of that and put it on the wall or a tattoo. you got to have some hip, cool, Twitter-like, or maybe old Twitter, the 120 characters mm -hmm. type of core value that you can uh, actually do a sermon series out of. Yeah, but see, discipleship is made up of those things. You can break discipleship down. To sit there and say our core value is, what, what do you say, generosity and... Um, if you're too big to serve, you're too small servant, to lead. Servant leadership. Yeah, that that's that's just simply known as, as discipleship for 2,000 years of church history. I, I, I don't know why we try to come up with improved ideas on this. This is what Jesus means when he says, go out into the world, and, and as you're going along... You know, baptize in my name, in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and make disciples. That is not the church of what's happening now, Pastor Ross. you got to get with it. You are a dinosaur. You go to your grandmother's church. I am a millennial, all right? I am a millennial. I am not a dinosaur. You are. <laughs> hey, well, good. Stay in that celebratory state today because this is why. I like people that are interactive when I'm preaching. So you need to clap and shout laugh at jokes even when they're not funny all right 
let me just this is just gonna be very very brief uh, just just shut up and get to the point get, get to the word right stop with the fluff you've been doing the fluff for a while the fluff's been a lot of really bad theology you just made it again about you again just just come and tell me the good news of the gospel even if you're not getting it be like that's good and even when i misquote the scriptures in a little bit and not preach it right you're like well i don't know if i believe that but sure all right just get behind it no 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 bad preacher bad bad where's a rolled up newspaper bad bad when i misquote the scripture just cheer me up no like like if, if, if you if you mispronounce a word but misquoting scripture let's see how the first time that went did god really say you can't eat any fruit of the of the tree you know anything in the garden no no just just that tree oh that's because god knows if you eat that you'll be like him Misquoting scripture should not be cheered. If you are so unprepared in your sermon to misquote scripture, you have no business being up there preaching. Basically, he's saying, when I accidentally turn scripture into a heretical idea, just go with it. Don't correct me. How, how does the church get to that point? You know, I am so grateful that in the Lutheran Church, that I am overseen, not just by my quote-unquote bishops, you know, circuit visitors, district presidents, things like that, but my elders. And my elders are charged with making sure that I don't preach wrong doctrine, which means that we have to spend time every elders meeting going over what is correct doctrine. I have somebody to call me on the carpet if I screw up. That, that's a good thing because if I screw up, I need to be called on the carpet so, one, I can uh, repent, and, two, correct the mistake the next Sunday so that false teaching does not become institutionalized within my congregation. I, I realize the American evangelical world is not monolithic, but how does a church body get to the point of where the pastor can sit up there or stand up there and say, if I teach false doctrine, if I misquote scripture and teach false doctrine, just be cool with it. Where's the oversight? There is none. I would be so terrified that God would strike me dead the minute I walked out of that church building. To add another layer to what you're saying, you're saying that there is there's a bishop over you, say, for instance, where we live here in the state of Kansas. Mm -hmm. Then there is what you said, a circuit visitor, which is Pastor Bruss. Then you've got elders in your local parish, as you mentioned, but then even members of the congregation. Yes. You know, this is what's so beautiful, again, about the Lutheran liturgy, is either A, before you preach, or B, after you preach, there's going to be the confession of the Christian faith that is shared by all, either in the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed, and once a year, the mm -hmm. Athanasian Creed. So this reciting of the creed is reminding everybody that this is true biblical orthodoxy. And if this pastor gets up there after we recite what is true biblical orthodoxy, or after he finishes preaching and we confess it and proclaim it, if it deviates mm -hmm. from this confession, we'll know that we, we got some work to do with our pastor. Yeah. You just reminded me, Paul... If even an angel were to come and preach a different gospel, let him be anathema. In other words, condemned to, to, to hell. hell. And this guy basically just said, if I come and preach a false gospel, be cool with it. All right. 
Because you guys are in the middle of this series called Reverse. You're taking popular verses that have been misused in scripture or get misquoted, misinterpreted. And we're trying to teach them to you biblically and correctly. And like Pastor Tim said, uh, when he called and said, you still want to preach? I was like, yeah. He said, do you want to just preach whatever you want? I was like, no, are you in the middle of a series? He said, yeah, we're doing this series. I was like, no, I don't, I don't mind jumping in. He said, good, we'll send you a verse. And then he sent it to me. And I sat there and I texted him. I said, you couldn't toss me a softball? I couldn't get Jesus wept? Like I couldn't get John 3.16? Come on, somebody. Like I couldn't get the easy one? No, no, no. He said this. John 13 picks up here and says this. John 14, verse 13. And, when, and I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. I was like, all right. Some of y'all in the room heard that verse and thought, man, I like that. There ain't nothing to reteach here. Anything I want, I ask Jesus for it and I get it. So you're like, sermon done. He is Aladdin's magic lamp. Thank you, Jesus. And I just, whatever I want, I get it. Some of you sat here and read that with me and just went, well, that's not true. Because I've prayed and I've prayed and I've prayed and it hasn't happened and God didn't do what I asked. So that's not true. He won't do it. And for the next about 25 minutes, I want to help you unpack this verse a little bit. Maybe help us all understand exactly what Jesus might have been saying to us in the context of when he said this in John 14. Let's pray together. God, we love you. The good news about you is that your word does not return void. So when we send it out, you bring it back and you harvest it and you speak through it. So God, we ask your word to speak today. Get me out of the way. Holy Spirit, have your way in this service. Speak to us in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm just going to have to have a slight theological disagreement that the good news is that the, the word doesn't return void. The, the good news is that Jesus died for our sins. He should have prayed this prayer at the beginning because if he wants to get, he wants God to get him out of the way, he's been front and center ever since he opened his mouth. Well, then he couldn't pray it at the beginning. He'd have to cut out the, the first 10 minutes of everything he was talking about because it was all about him. How many of you know context is important to understand why something was said and how it was said, right? Context is important. Back in the day, somebody would be like, man, that dude's fat. They didn't mean with an F, they meant with a PH, right? He's cool. Context is important. I got that a lot. Man, you fat. Like, come on, bro, I'm in the gym. I'm trying to lose weight. Easy. They're like, no, no, I mean, you're like, good. So context is important. And the context of this scripture is very important. So you understand what's happened here in John chapter 12? Jesus has entered Jerusalem triumphantly. He's come. People are celebrating him. And in John 13, the Last Supper has begun. He's washed his disciples' feet, which is the most beautiful picture of servant leadership there is. He's washed their feet. And then he sits down at the dinner table and begins to have some of the most encouraging dinner conversation ever. One of you is going to betray me. Somebody in the room right now. Somebody is turning me. They stabbed me in the back. Somebody in here is doing it. Everybody's looking around. Oh, my gosh. It ain't me. It's Judas. He's on the end. That's him. All right? Like, they're all getting the... And then he looks at it and he says, and not only that, Peter, you're going to deny me three times not me no sir i'm sure everybody at the table is getting stressed out this is the worst dinner conversation ever right now what is this guy he's super depressing right now you're betraying you're denying well i don't know what i'm doing i'm probably just going to run off in a little bit when he's praying in the garden whatever right and then we get to john 14 and jesus understands that they're probably feeling a little bit down so he says hey hey be encouraged for where i go i'm going to prepare a place for you so the way I am, you're going to be with me one day. Come on, you guys know the way. And then it happens. Old Thomas, only guy in the Bible who got the, a nasty like disclaimer with his name, doubting 
Thomas. Man, that's not encouraging at all. Couldn't get like joyful Thomas, nice guy, doubting Thomas. He goes, uh, he says in verse five, uh, Lord, we don't know where you're going. So how can we know the way? You told us we know the way. I don't know how we can even know how to get there because we don't know where you're going. You feel like God looks at us like sometimes like, Thomas, for real? Oh, my gosh. Matt, are you serious, bro? How many times have we read the Bible together, right? It's like, no. So he goes on to say, guys, John 14, 6, one of the most famous verses. Hey, look, I'm the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. Nobody gets to the Father but through me. That's one of the seven what we call definitive statements of Christ. Ego I me. I am. Seven definitive statements. I had a chance to preach through all of these, and we taught this one first because it's the most important one. He's the way. He's the truth. He's the life. If you don't believe that one, don't even read the other six statements that he made about who he is. And what you need to know this morning before we go anywhere else, Jesus is making a statement here. It's all about me. I'm the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. This is all about me. And if you can't get that this morning, we won't be able to understand the rest of it. you got to know that all of this is about Jesus. I told our church I wanted to get shirts made that say Jesus with a period on the end of it. Jesus, period. There's nothing else to it. Don't add to it. Don't take away from it. It's all about him. And the minute you think this is about you, you begin to slowly misread what's going on here. Because this is all about Jesus. It's why at our church, our first core value is Jesus is our message. We only got one message. It's not a self-help message. It's not a feel-good message. It's the Jesus message. He was doing so good there because this, this prayer isn't about me. But then when he sits there and, and he, he talks about, you know, I just want t-shirts with Jesus, period. Just, just Jesus, just Jesus, just Jesus. And then he says, our first core value is, is what is it, the message of Jesus or, or our message is Jesus. Our message is Jesus. Not our first core value is not Jesus. Our first core value is the message. It's <laughs> his teaching so far on on this. It's not about me. It, it's about Jesus. This is not a simple formula. If I tack on in Jesus name on my prayer, I get the Mercedes. I get the house. I get the girlfriend, wife, whatever. That, that's not what it's about. It, it's um, it's about praying in the will of God. I mean, that's what this whole context of these verses are. So, I mean, he was going so strong and then, and then it's just like, man, come, do you listen to the words coming out of your mouth? And, and kudos to him for, as you say, giving, I mean, my goodness, he did give some good context. He went way back into uh, chapter 12, if I'm not mistaken, and began there and started walking his listeners through really what's going on. Yeah. Because he's the way. He's the truth. He's the life. And then he goes on to tell these guys, look, I'm the father and the father's in me and I'm in the father. You guys get this, right? He's like, hey, I, me and God, we're together. We're mutually exclusive. So that's how you know the way. And then he goes on in verse 12 and he says this. He says, truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do works I have been doing and they will do even greater things than these because I'm going to the father. That verse blows my mind. He healed the lame. He raised the dead. He healed blind eyes. He walked on water. He fed 5,000 with a bag lunch. Like, greater things will do. Greater things. And then immediately after that, immediately after that, he says, and I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. And you may ask, ask anything in my name and I will do it. Context is important. So I'm telling you, the greater things you will do, how you will do them is because you're going to ask this is an important phrase you need to grab today. In my name. In my name. It's all about Jesus. You're going to ask in my name. And that's how it will happen. 
Tell us whatever we ask in your name, Jesus, we'll get. The problem isn't in the promise. Like we don't have a problem with the promise. It's with the condition. It's with the condition we have an issue. The, it's not about whatever I ask he's going to do it. It's this, oh, it's in his name. There's a condition to it. There's something that goes along with it. And this morning, I think we got to understand that that gets overlooked. This phrase has been common in our prayer life. It's become the way we wrap up every prayer. I wrapped it up earlier. In Jesus' name, amen. It's like when we say it and somebody doesn't use that when they pray, we wonder if their prayer was even real. Oh, you didn't say in Jesus' name, amen. Like that's how you have to end the prayer. That's how we know we're wrapping up and it's time to eat and then we can leave because you said in Jesus' name, amen. How does a Lutheran end their prayers, especially ones that are, you know, the colics that are prayed in church? Uh, for you live and reign with the Father and in the Holy Spirit, one God now and forever. Amen. We never just tack on that phrase uh, in our, our, our morning prayer, our evening prayer, our prayer uh, before or after a meal, um, the colics that are prayed, the proper preface that's made. I mean, there's a yeah. lot of prayers. I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm just simply saying it is rare to hear Yeah, that. It, it is very rare. And, and he is so right that the context is, is important on this, but he also, he missed the context. What starts off this whole discourse right here, which, which goes through uh, many verses, is Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, and then he goes on this discourse, and this whole discourse is, Philip, you see me, I and the Father are one, right? You, you ask it in my name, it's going to happen, because I and the Father are one. Not in the sense that this, that this verse ends the discourse, but Philip, you are seeing God the Father right now because I'm here. And not only that, when I go away and the Holy Spirit comes down and you see miracles being performed through faith in Christ, you're going to see the Father in action, Philip. This is what that whole discourse is. And this is the problem when you take a verse out of context or take a couple verses out of context. You come up with this, I can do all things in Christ who strengthens me, right? At the gym. Yeah, at the gym or, or in, at the sporting event, you know, Paul is talking about, I can suffer in prison because Christ is with me. What? Yes, I can suffer in a first century Roman prison as a political prisoner because Christ is with me, I guys. thought it was to be a good salesman of cars. No. I can do all things through Christ. Pastor Ross, you are, you are such a dream crusher. Read scripture. He is making a big point of context, 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 he, which is which is true. And he misses half the context. Correct. You know, in the Reformed circles, the chief attribute of God is glory. In the Reformed circles as well, there's a lot of emphasis placed on really all of the attributes of God. What Luther does is he says, you know, the God that we are supposed to see is not this transcendent, glorious being that is omnipresent, omnipotent. All of these attributes that are just extremely beyond us. Mm -hmm. Luther says, no, you look, you want to find God, you look at the babe in the manger. You mm -hmm. look at the man standing beside the seashore teaching the people. You look at the man on the cross. Like, this is who God has given us to look to yeah. rather than these transcendent attributes that that and we have such a hard time even comprehending. Continue that thought. Where would you find the man teaching on the seashore? Where would you find the babe in the manger? Where would you find 
Christ on the cross? Well, one is his words and his promises, Mm -hmm. but where I take him in my actual hands and in my mouth is when I take the very body and blood of the Lord Jesus. So in the preaching of the word and the administration of the sacraments. That's it. And that was Luther's point. Where do you want to find the transcendent Christ and these very ordinary things for, for us? In the preaching of God's word and the administration of the sacraments. By the way, this this affects everything. This is where he gets the doctrine of vocation from. This is where he realizes that the milkmaid faithfully doing her work is doing a greater work to God than the monk squirreled away in a monastery. Praying all day. Because she is living out love of God through love of neighbor and taking what she hears on a Sunday to those around her. And, you know, this is what's so beautiful, again, about the Lutheran liturgy, is after the sacrament of the altar is finished, what's the first song we sing? The Nunc Dimittis. Mm -hmm. This is Simeon, who sinful hands touched and held little baby Jesus, the Savior of the world. He is the first person in Scripture outside of Mary who holds the baby Jesus. And what did we, as a congregation, just get through doing? Holding Jesus. There you go. Yeah. And so we join in his song. It's it is absolutely beautiful. There are so many layers to the liturgy, by the way. People just get it because it or miss it because it's so rote. We do this all the time. Lord, now let your servant depart in peace because I've seen the glory of the Lord. What is the glory of the Lord that we just saw? The sacrament, which reminds us of the death on the cross. So Simeon takes in the baby Jesus. Here is the glory of the Lord. And we see what Simeon didn't see, but Simeon is pointing us to the death on the cross for the forgiveness of sins and the resurrection on Easter Sunday with the promise of life everlasting. Lord, let me depart in peace because I have seen Christ on the cross and my sins forgiven. When I took this, this little wafer and the sip of, of, from the cup in my mouth, which contained the, the body and blood of Christ Jesus, my Lord. And our minds don't explode. I mean, this is when he talks about like we should be jumping for joy. When right. you take communion, you should be jumping for joy. I don't want I don't want to sound like that's law, but like my mind explodes every Sunday when when I realize like what all is is, is going on here. Well, yeah. I mean, you could take it back to even the garden. I mean, what is it that got us into this mess to begin with? Well, it was it was eating. I mean, mm-hmm. something there was a promise attached to something that was edible. Yeah. Well, you fast forward it now to where Jesus says, this cup is the New Testament in my blood. Yeah. There's now a promise attached to eating. Yeah. And Jesus even says, hey, in the new heavens and the new earth, we're going to do this then too, and I'm going to do it with you. Yeah. I love it. I, I, I mean, I love that part of the communion liturgy because it just it drives us once again to, to the forgiveness of sins. You mentioned about the reform, just like the, the transcendent attributes of God. And it just reminded me of um, th- there's one place in Scripture where somebody is, is in church, so to speak, and, and he looks up and he sees the glory, the kavod, the, the heaviness, the, the glory of God. And, and do you want to know what his first words are? Woe is me, for I'm undone. I am a man of unclean lips from a people of unclean lips. I'm coming apart at the seams, <laughs> right? Like, I have just met my doom. God is going to strike me dead and obliterate me. That's Isaiah, by the way. Mm-hmm. 
Um, so, so when people are like, I want to see the glory of God, I'm like, no, you don't. No, you don't. No, you don't, because you see it and you realize just what a poor, miserable sinner you are and that you are just, you're doomed. That's what it's become. That's not what that phrase was intended. Do you understand that in the New Testament, nobody ever prayed and said, in Jesus' name, amen. That's not how they prayed. The in Jesus' name part is, I am standing on the only name that can save, the only name that can heal, the only name that can redeem. It is in that name I step in with authority as I pray. It's in the name of Jesus because it's all about him. It's not about me. So I don't come to him and go, oh, hey, I got, I need all these things. I don't know, you know, we just drove by. I don't know if you saw that Lamborghini that was a convertible. I need that in Jesus' name. Yes, Lord. It's not... It's not what we're talking about. Do you know that they actually read the Bible in other places in America? And they actually pray in those places as well. And a lot of times their prayers look like this. God, can you bring rain for the crops to grow? God, I need food because my kids haven't eaten in three days. God, we don't have access to doctors, so God, you're going to have to be the healer. Sometimes we got to take a step back and get a godly perspective of how we're praying. But God, I need the houseboat in your name, Jesus. That's how we pray, Lord, if in the morning you could just give me $5 million in unmarked, untraceable bills in a box on my front porch, in Jesus' name, amen. And as sincere as that prayer may be, listen, as sincere as that is, that is a horrible misuse of prayer and in the name of Jesus, a horrible misuse. Think about that. You ever been around people that go, Jesus, if you could just let me win the Powerball, I will become the most generous person you have ever seen. I'll build the building for Life Community Church. Let me win the Powerball. Can I just step on your toes real quick? If you won't give God $10 when you got 100 why would he ever give you $300 million and think you're going to be generous with it? That's not how that works. So God's generosity is, is dependent upon me tithing. Tithing, which is, is part of the law. I, I just... Oh, Turning gospel into law again. Turning gospel into law again. If, if you basically, what I just took away from that was, if I have a hundred bucks and I give the church ten, I should win the Powerball. If you won't give him thirty bucks when you got three hundred, I don't think he's giving you three hundred million and thinking you're gonna give thirty million, right? That's not how that works. That's a misuse of it. And I know it's as genuine as that may be, but God, I'll do it in Your name, Jesus. That's not what we're talking about this morning. I think there's a posturing of ourselves when we come in prayer. And the good news for us this morning that I want to help teach you is, I believe Jesus already laid it out for us. The Lord's Prayer is something that I believe has gotten really misused. Because what happens is, we think, well, that's the prayer. I pray that word for word, and that's the prayer. And here's what I'm saying. If you don't know what to pray sometimes, pray that. If you don't know how to say it or what to say, pray the Lord's Prayer. It's great. But that's not what Jesus said. Jesus didn't say, hey, when you guys prayed, pray this word for word. Pastor Ross, he didn't? He didn't say pray this word for word? Oh, man. I just, oh, man. This guy needs to come to my confirmation class. That's all I can say. We teach the confirmands that of all the things they could have asked, they being the disciples, could have asked Jesus to show them how to do it. You know, I would have asked Jesus Show me how to turn water into wine. I mean, I think I could really use that, that ability. Or teach me how to walk on water. Or teach me how to multiply food with just a little bit of food. I mean, these, these things would be really, really cool to know how to do. They don't come to him and say, how did you do that? They say, teach us to pray. 
Jesus opens his mouth and he says, when you pray, say. Exactly. Luke 11. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples, not one of the apostles, one of his disciples. And, and that's, that's important because there are things that are prescriptive and descriptive. And some of the things said to the apostles only apply to the, the apostles. And so they're descriptive for us of like, you know, you're going to do greater things than this. I am not going into uh, the hospitals in town and healing the lame, right? I'm not walking up to somebody who's about to have a hip surgery and, you know, laying hands on. And all of a sudden the doctor's like, oh my gosh, like, like amazing. You're, you're like Benny Hinn or something. So, so some things are, are more descriptive than, than prescriptive. In other words, a prescriptive is something that uh, we should do. It's prescribed. So one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. So this was a common thing for teachers. Jesus was a rabbi, right? Mary in the garden, Rabboni teacher. They, they taught their disciples you know, just, just ways to pray. And, and these prayers were usually simple. And, and the thing about it is, is even though they're simple in words, they're complex in meaning, and there's multiple, multiple layers to them. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. So this ESV translation kind of amalgamates uh, a couple of different things. Yes, Jesus taught his disciples, which we are Jesus' disciples, to pray in a certain way. Now, that doesn't mean that it's the only prayer that we have. But it is the gold standard prayer. Exactly. It's called the Lord's Prayer for a reason. We don't pray Jesus' full prayer at the Garden of Gethsemane because we weren't taught to do that. So he says, when you pray, say. Not just when I'm around, not just when I'm walking on earth. When you pray, say. Say, say this prayer, guys. This, this, is, this is your chief prayer, so to speak. This is the gold standard. I don't know what this guy's reasoning, how is this being misused, that, that Christians today should not be saying the Lord's Prayer. They're justifying the fact that we don't have to do it, and the churches that do pray it, they are the ones who have abused it. Yeah, we don't have to pray it. In, in our Christian freedom, we don't have to pray the Lord's Prayer. I mean, what is the theological reasoning? Can, can, oh, I have no idea. It's all practical and trying to be relevant to the congregation. I don't know where he's going to go theologically. So praying the prayer that God taught us is not relevant to the congregation. That is just the... Oh, man. If you look at Matthew chapter 6, beginning of verse 9, he said, This, then, is how you should pray. This is how you should pray. So he says, when you pray, you should pray like this, like like how to pray. Yeah, not, not like but, an outline. But not these exact words. No, 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 no. No, I would have to go back. I don't have a Greek right in front of me, but I, I, got, I got an ESV right in front of me. I'm looking at Matthew 6, verse 9. And also Luke 11, verse 2. Now, Matthew 6, verse 9. Pray then like this. Right? This is after he says, don't heap up empty words like the Gentiles. Don't be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. That's not, to me, that's not necessarily an outline of, of how to pray. It's pray then like this. And then he gives a very specific 
prayer. He doesn't say this is an example. And then in Luke 11, verse 2, and he said to them, when you pray, say. When you pray, say. And, and this is the thing. Scripture interprets Scripture, right? So when you have multiple accounts or multiple parts of Scripture talking about the, the same thing, you have to synthesize those together. You have to bring them together to, to understand it. Because if two things say something, then that kind of lets you know how it's supposed to be interpreted in other words what's going on there and and to me okay yeah you could take Matthew 6 and say hey this is an outline but then when you look at Luke 11 say these words when you pray say these words that takes away the the outline aspect from from Matthew yeah because clearer passages govern unclear passages yes so when you do this as you say you harmonize these things it's like it brings you into greater clarity, and then you don't sound like a Yahoo getting up and really despising thousands of years of church history, saying, oh, they all got it wrong. The English, which as we know, carries its own problems mm -hmm. and requires study and knowledge of the original languages, when you read, pray then like this, you're not going to look like a fool standing up in front of other people and say, oh, this is just an outline. Yeah, this is why we don't interpret the whole Bible through Revelation, but we use the whole Bible to interpret Revelation. When a passage might have multiple meanings, and there are clearer passages, especially the same account like in the Gospels, that have a very clear interpretation, a very clear meaning of, of the exact uh, shade that Jesus was talking about in, in a less clear passage, you go with the clearer meaning. That's what he says. doesn't go, hey, he gives us a blueprint for prayer. And this is how the blueprint goes. Let's read it together. You know it. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts. Some say sins as we forgive our debtors or our other sinners. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Jesus said, when you pray, this is how you should do it. I'm going to give you a blueprint of what prayer looks like. He doesn't say word for word. He says, this is how it should pray. So you know how he said, just to cut him slack when he misquotes scripture? <laughs> I just can't do that. So You're he, not going to agree with him? No, I'm not. Well, here's here's what he did. He inserted into Scripture the common Protestant ending of the prayer, which is the, the doxology, doxology, right? right? And, and, and here's the thing. Anybody who has actually had good theological training know, knows that the doxology is not Scripture. It is not a part of the Lord's Prayer. It teaches what Scripture teaches, but that part is not technically the Lord's Prayer. Prayer. The church added it. Yeah, the, the church added it for, for good reason, by the way. But don't tell me that this is a blueprint. This is how you are to pray that Jesus says that. Then quote scripture and then add to scripture. Don't do that. Just end it where it ends. And then you can explain, hey, you might have heard this other part and whatever if you need some more filler. Or, but, but don't tell me you're quoting scripture and then add to scripture like that. I'm not cutting him slack. I'm not going to say good job, buddy. He likes that. I don't care. Let me walk you through what I think this looks like that will help change your prayers when you go to the fact of whatever I ask in his name, he's going to do it. Look how the prayer begins. You need to, first, if you're taking notes, write this down. You need to connect with God relationally. 
You need to connect with him relationally. That's why he begins the prayer, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Pastor Ross, how have you connected with God relationally? Well, you know, I bought him some chocolates and flowers the other day, and uh, we went and got dinner and a movie. Um, how have I connected with God relationally? Well, last night we had church, and, and last night God came to me through the word and said, my sins were forgiven in Jesus Christ. And this was not of my own doing. This was not because I was good enough. This, this was simply because God loved me as a father loves, loves a child. And where did that relationship begin? When I was baptized at six months old. Connect with him on a relational level. It doesn't have to be this Shakespearean language. Oh, Lord of hosts, thou art great and holy. Like, it's not that. That doesn't even make sense. People pray like that. I'm like, where, what happened? Did we step into a London like theater department? I don't know what we're doing up here. I was in college, and for the first time, I was in a prayer group, and cell phones were not as popular. We have smartphones. We had old flip phones and push-button phones. Come on, somebody. And I thought a guy was on his phone because we're praying. All of a sudden, I heard. He goes, hey, Papa. I was like, "Are you? who did you call? That's what I'm thinking. And he said, he's like, hey, Dad. I'm like, "Are you? who are you talking to? But it was relational. Hey, God. Hey, Father. Lord. I mean, it's just connect with him on a relational level. That's what Jesus is saying. When you come to him, connect relationally. God, Father, it opens the conduit. He knows, he knows your thoughts, everybody, but it's, it's going, hey, I'm directing this at you, Father, heaven, all of that. So I guess my prayer is ineffective if I say at the beginning of it, Almighty and everlasting God. That's I mean, it's, I got to say, Papa. He, he said that it was disingenuous, basically. You know, reading between the lines, you, you are disingenuous if you use this he called it Shakespearean language yeah there, there's something to be said about how we can approach the the throne of, of grace and confidence there's also something to be said that this is the creator of the universe and you know that's not just somebody that you just walk up and be like hey bro you want to get a beer there, there's a tension between those two and and People throughout history have fallen on one part of the spectrum or, or another. And so I don't want to put down somebody who says either they've been taught to, to quote unquote, relate to God or uh, that, you know, that's their comfort zone for whatever reason. Just realize that just because that's your comfort zone, somebody else's comfort zone might be these more formal things that, that remind us of some of the aspects of God, right? He said, Papa, right? But if you went and go, All right, my father and sustainer are, oh, holy creator. Though, I mean, you're praying to the same guy. It's the same relationship, but how it's expressed is different. And, and you know, he's putting down more formal stuff. And I don't want to put down informal stuff, but I will say this, in the congr- or in the context of a Gathering, a gathering, um, a a certain formality does help. It does help because the the overriding principle of worship is, is it teaching the people? Well, it's always teaching the people. It's a matter of, is it teaching them correctly? Yes. Is it teaching them correctly? And and it's not just the sermon that's the teaching. It's why we have the readings and the hymns and the prayers and everything like that, that that all ties into reminding us of just a lot of stuff 
about God? Because there is a lot of stuff, and, and you're giving us an hour, you know, <laughs> to try to cram a lot of things into it. Let's not put down people who are a little bit more formal, because the thing about it is, is it goes to good order. These these churches that are liturgical, a Lutheran church, Episcopalians, Roman Catholic, Eastern Orthodox, Presbyterians, Methodists, Anglicans, they have kept this 2,000-year-old rite of worship, either the, the Eastern rite or the Western rite, for a reason, because they have found out throughout the times of history that this is a really good teaching tool, and it teaches really, really good things, and it helps us to teach the full counsel of God throughout the year. He basically just made it a law that if you don't sit there and go to God in this very informal setting, then you really don't have a relationship with God. To me, that is utter just cow manure. The next one is, you need to pray his will first. Because look what it says there, may your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This one's huge. When I come to God in a posture that, God, this is all about you, that, Jesus, this is all about you, this has nothing to do with me, this is all for your name and all for your glory and all for your renown, God, whatever you want to do. God, get me out of the way. I want your thoughts and your desires and your will for my life. That's what I'm coming to you with, God. I want to come to you like that and a posturing myself of this isn't about me. This is all about you, Jesus. How can you be this right and this wrong? I, I don't understand it. He is right. It is not about me. It is not about me. When I pray, when I pray those first few petitions of the Lord's Prayer, in fact, every petition of the Lord's Prayer, it's not about me. It's about God. Our Father, who art in heaven, that's the introduction. Hallowed be your name. Holy be your name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Those first few petitions. What he just said, though, and I don't think he realized this, and I, I wonder what he would do if you he, if he pointed this out to him, by saying that, that we need to pray that it's all about God's will, that we need to pray that it's God's kingdom coming, that God's will and God's kingdom is not being done here on earth right now, that God is impotent, is what he just said. Now, that is damnable heresy. He literally doesn't realize what he just said. That's one of the great things that I've come to realize about my seminary training was the fact that we weren't just taught theology to memorize and then spew out, but we were taught to critically analyze the arguments. If seminary was just to teach you everything you needed to know, you would never graduate. There wouldn't be a pastor in the world because, I mean, how do you cram? 8,000 years worth of history into a four-year education, which one year of that is, by the way, is, is an internship. You, you can't. But what he just said is that God's will is not being done and God's kingdom is not coming. And that's not what this prayer is actually saying. When we say, thy kingdom come, what we mean is that God would use us to expand his already established kingdom. There's three kingdoms. There is the kingdom of power. That is all creation. He is the creator. It can't not be his. There is the kingdom of glory, which is the, the church in heaven. And there's the kingdom of grace, which is the church on earth. And so when we pray uh, that kingdom come, we're saying, God, use me and expanding your kingdom of grace. Because the other two kingdoms are outside of my control. They're, they're already here. They already exist. And not only that, 
the kingdom of grace would exist without me. The church will never not be here. The gates of hell won't ever overthrow the church. We're saying, God, use me to proclaim your kingdom of grace. That is salvation in Jesus' name, the forgiveness of sins in Jesus. But God's kingdom is already here, right? The kingdom of grace is already here. It's called the church. And God's obviously the kingdom of glory. It's in heaven. It's waiting for the, the remaking of heaven and earth. And obviously God's kingdom of power is totally here. If God's kingdom of power wasn't here, we wouldn't be talking right now. Pastor Kearns, we would be just poof. And then it's the same thing with God's will. God's will is already here. God's will is already being done. God's will is done without me. I'm sorry, I am not the most important person in the universe that if I don't pray this prayer, God's will can't be done. In fact, in spite of me, probably a lot of times God's will is done. And what I mean by that is God sometimes uses very abject sinners. I'm, I'm thinking of like the Assyrians and the Babylonians to be his instruments, to bring judgment on his people, Israel. Yeah. So in spite of themselves, because obviously they're not wor- worshiping the one true God, God is using them. But but what this guy just said is that <laughs> we got to pray for God's will to be done. Otherwise, it won't be done. And we got to pray for God's kingdom to come. Otherwise, it, it, it won't come. And that is just a complete denying of, of reality. And like I said, that that is when you unpack that and you realize what you're saying you realize that is damnable heresy because you just said God is not all-powerful. You just said that God might be weaker than Satan, that that God didn't create everything because something else is sustaining everything, and and that God's will can be overridden. Well, isn't it great, though, that in the explanation of the petition in the small catechism, God's kingdom comes even without this prayer? yes. What does it, the kingdom of God certainly comes by itself without our prayer, but we also pray in this petition that it may come to us also. So that's that kingdom of grace, really, that you're talking about, yes, that yes. we would be a part of this kingdom of grace that's already happening. Yes, that we would be a part of that kingdom of grace already happening, and part of that kingdom of grace is proclaiming Christ in your words and actions. That doesn't mean you got to be a street preacher. But that does mean that I don't cheat on my taxes. It does mean that my 90-something-year-old neighbor who can't mow her yard anymore and her kids can't come over to mow it, I mow her yard. If I, if I see it needs to be mowed, I just, I just mow it. It's a way that I can show the love of Christ in a real and tangible way. Everybody's a missionary. doesn't mean that we all go to foreign countries, right? It doesn't mean that we're all street preachers. But you are a if you are, are a parent, you are a missionary to your kids. If you are a child, you are a missionary to your parents, siblings. You know, if you're an employee or a boss, you're, you're a missionary. And, and you might not always be able to say the words. But when you have an opportunity, do say the words. But the other thing is, is you also express your faith through your actions. And, and that, I mean, that's what it means to be a part of the kingdom of grace, is, is being a disciple and realizing that God is using you to make other disciples. So I'm posturing myself that way. you got to pray his will first. And when you do that, it changes everything. When you get yourself in that posture, the next one is this. You need to depend on him for everything. Give us this day our daily bread. you got to depend on him for everything. I just want you all to know, I never want to get to a place where I'm not completely dependent on God. Where I'm completely dependent on him. That sounds so pious. 
I never want to get to a place where I'm not completely dependent upon him. Yeah, I'm sure he doesn't want to do that, but guess what he does on a regular basis? He is not dependent upon God. None of us are. This is why we are sinners. We trust in ourselves. We don't fear, love, and trust in God above all things. Mm -hmm. He's making himself out like, be like me. I want to depend upon God for everything. You should too. Yeah. And no Christian ever sits there and says, I want to be at a place where I'm not dependent upon God. I mean, obviously, um, but but we do that. that that's, we call that sin when we put ourselves or our desires, whatever, above what actually God's will is. The gospel part of it is, is that we are completely dependent upon God, right? Every good gift that I get is from God. Whether And, and, and here's the thing. I don't deserve it or not. I don't deserve good parents. I don't deserve good government. Because I'm a sinner. We don't deserve good things, but God gives us good things. He takes this this part of, well, I don't want to be there. Uh, I don't want to not be dependent upon God, like, completely. Not, not just dependent. I don't want to be, com- I, I don't want ever not be completely. He's got the double negative in there, and it's just throwing me off, <laughs> right? He's saying, I want to be completely reliant upon God. Without ever recognizing the fact that even non-believers are completely reliant upon God. And and here's why when he sits there and says, and, and this is this is why he misses it, because he starts this by saying, Jesus says, pray something like this, right? This is an example. This is a template, right? You go to Microsoft Word and you say, I need a template for prayer. Go, oh, here's a good one. Okay, I'm going to adapt this to, to whatever I need. Instead of recognizing that this prayer is the Lord's prayer, this is Jesus' prayer, pray this way use these words pray this exact prayer and and you know we're 2000 years later and we're still mining the depths and levels of this prayer of, of what it means all creation everybody is reliant upon god the 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 squirrels outside reliant upon god just as i am whether i recognize that or not is the difference between a christian and a non-christian i i would say Right, uh, recognizing it with thanksgiving. Yes, with, with thanksgiving. And he completely misses that point and becomes, he makes himself an idol. Mm-hmm. You guys should strive to be like me. Going off of your point, one of the things that I was thinking about is he said it already that this is just a template. He takes the petitions that the Lord has given and he's changing those. He's saying that doesn't really mean this, it means this. So if we were to take everything that he says it means... It would be this bastardization of the Lord's Prayer. Exactly, because he's only getting a quarter to a half of of the petitions, of, of any of the, the kind of single asking requests in the prayer. He, he, he only gets part of each one. The, the only way that I can put this in, into words is he's taking God out of a prayer to God. And, and, and when he does that, you have to substitute something in there. And, and he substituted himself, and he's saying you should substitute yourself in this. Right now, you heard your pastor say on the stage, you go, hey, guys, we need to all come in. We're going to see God get every volunteer and every person to give, and we're going to see this thing go debt-free. You know who he's trusting in? Not you in the seats, that God's going to do what he said he's going to do. It's a complete dependence on God. But he uses us to do it, but it's completely got to be him. As a church planner, you quickly learn this. If God doesn't show up, you're in trouble. Every week I'm like that. I'm like, if you don't show up, this thing is going downhill. Because if it's on me, we have already learned that I will screw this up bad. Right? Like, it's going to have to be you. 
So when people show up, that's why as your pastors, we're excited when you're in the seats. We're like, oh my God, somebody actually came. They actually like us. All right, right? That's what you think every week. Because the enemy whispers in our ear every Sunday, this is the week no one's coming. That's what you think. You're like, oh my God, that's it. Nobody's going to show up this week and we're done. That's what you think. But it's this dependence on God to go, God, even if nobody shows up, you'll be in the building. And so God will move and we'll worship and we'll lift you up because this is all about you. So God, I'm completely dependent on you for everything. The next one is this. You have to keep your heart right with God and other people. Because he says, hey, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who have sinned against us. Forgive our debts as we forgive our debtors. Like, you got to keep your heart right with God and other people. So the Bible tells us if you come to him in prayer and you remember you've got a grievance against your brother, get up off the altar and go make it right and then come back. Have you ever been in that place where you've tried to connect with God, but you're holding a grudge against somebody? You've got some family tensions going on wherever it is. You get mad at God because you don't feel like you can relate to him. He's going, look, I'm not the issue. you got issues with somebody else that you need to get right before you come to me. That's how I set this thing up. That when you pray, connect with me relationally, pray for my will first. You need to depend on me and you need to keep it right. Not only does your heart need to be right with me, God, I need you to forgive me. I know I screwed up and forgive my sins, but I also need to get it right with other people. And then he wraps it up with this. You need to have faith in God's ability. Did you like how uh, kind of in the middle of all that, he just violated, depending on, on your uh, theological background, the second or, or third commandment, uh, don't take the Lord's name in vain. Twice? Yeah. I, I don't know. I don't ever wake up on Sunday. This is the week nobody's going to show up. That mindset is is uh, very weird for me, and I don't know. Uh, maybe I just trust God more than he does. I don't know. Oh, you're so <laughs> dependent. <laughs> you are so dependent upon God. No, um, but you, did you see right there how he, he summarized everything that he said? That, so now let's take these things that he's uh, attributed to the, the true petitions, and you get this. It's like this hybrid animal, you know. It's this oh, yeah. uh, chubacabra, <laughs> you know. <laughs> it's like, what is this? Yeah, you know, it, it was interesting because, you know, churches do rely on on uh, members giving, and and that 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 is, I I would say, um, he, he is kind of right in saying that that is God working through means um, to uh, maintain a or a visible presence within the community. What, why, why do you give? Do you give out of a sense of an obligation? Right, This is my 10%, 10% cut right off the top. I don't give out of obligation. And this is why Paul writes in, in Corinthians, you know, whatever you decide to give in your heart, give because God loves a joyful giver. We give in response to the gifts that God has already given us. Now, whether that's 1% or 99%, he's completely missing that point. And they're saying, you give because you have to. And we're going to trust God that you're going to give what you have to. Instead of, we give as a gospel response to the salvation that we have. When he goes on to forgiveness, I don't even know where to begin. Well, that's a great point because, you know, he even said something about how, yes, Lord, I've screwed up. Like, he doesn't say, I've sinned. He doesn't say, I'm a poor, miserable sinner. He doesn't say, I'm deserving of hell, both of a temporal and eternal punishment. The evangelical has a really, really difficult time in verbalizing, number one, their own sinfulness, and number two, the fact that they need constant forgiveness. 
the evangelical would look at the time in which they got saved. That's when they were forgiven. And this is why this prayer rubs them the wrong way, and they want to try to squirrel out of it. And that's the, the beauty of this prayer, by the way, is, is the fact that, towards the end of it, we are recognizing that we are sinners. And I don't, I don't know why that's a hard word for people to say, but, um, you know, I'm, I'm a sinner. It, it, it's, it's the truth. We recognize that we are sinners. We're asking God for forgiveness. We're, we're saying, don't uh, not listen to this prayer because I'm, a, because I'm a sinner. And and by the way, I forgive those who have sinned against me. You know, there, there's several points in, in a, a uh, divine service where that command of if you're at the altar and you remember, you know, you're holding the grudge against your brother or your brother sinned against you or whatever, you know, leave the sacrifice there and go and make amends with your brother. There, there are three points within a service where this is done. The first is confession and absolution, right? A general public confession and absolution. I am confessing that I'm a sinner, and part of my sin is that I'm holding sin against somebody else. That That's Im- implicitly a part of that, right? Part of being a sinner is that I hold grudges against other people. Um, are as mad at other people. So you, usually most people don't have to be very early on into their day for, for this to happen. The Lord's Prayer is another one right here. The, these these petitions, um, forgive me my trespasses as I forgive those who trespass against me or debts or sins, depending on which translation. The other one is the passing of the peace. A lot of people now, it's it's just a, well, get up and greet those around you. And, and we've completely lost the, the historical context of what this was for. This was for if I held a grudge against my neighbor. At this point, we went and we hashed it out because we're going to be taking communion later on in the service, right? So we went and we hashed this out. It's done. We're at peace. We can go to the altar. And, and when you go to the altar rail, you are saying, I don't have divisions with these people around me. Because it says, for yours is the kingdom, and yours is the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. See, the problem with prayer sometimes is we come in, and we bring a big need before God. But there's a part of us that doesn't believe God is who he said he is and will do what he said he'll do. So on the way up of our knees, we grab a piece of it and take it with us just in case he doesn't come through. So we're praying and going, God, I'm believing that you're going to touch that person. But just in case you don't, I want to have an out to say, well, I wasn't 100% sure he would do it. But you have to have faith in God's ability. What's so powerful about this prayer is it contains six petitions. The first three are with God. You're petitioning him for his name, his kingdom, his will. And the last three deal with our needs, provision, pardon, and protection. Like, I need you to provide for me, God. I need you to forgive my sins, but I need you to cover me and protect me and guard me. And that's why this thing works. I come to him and I pray those three petitions first. God, this is your name, your will, your kingdom. It's not about me. But he's okay with you bringing requests before him. It pleases him to be a good father to meet your needs. Pastor Ross, do you see how the evangelical is almost schizophrenic? I mean, here this guy has been saying this entire time that this is just a blueprint. But he said, just right there, he said, this is such a powerful prayer. And then he actually, you know, he spelled out the petitions and what they are. The first three are about God. Mm -hmm. 
The next three are about our needs. He is not theologically thought through this. And, and there was three big things in there. So he's completely skipped the last petition, deliver us from the evil one. He has, he, he's put in the evangelical alliteration. And then he includes the uh, doxology as a part of Jesus' prayer. Which is interesting, but again, you know, he said, hey, cut me some slack. I'm going to misquote scripture here, so don't hold it against me. Backing up even further than that, he has clearly gotten away from the original intent, what he was asked to preach. Yeah, you know, I don't he, even remember what it was. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't remember what he, was, what he came up to, to preach about. He's been talking about himself, the church play, and the Lord's Prayer. Well, let's see if he, <laughs> let's see if he circles back to it at well, least. So then I come to him and say, God, in light of all of that, your will, your desires, your name, your kingdom, God, here's what I need. Here's what I'm asking of you in your name, believing that you are who you say you are. God, I need this. And it, del it delights him to do it. And when we get that focus right, when we pray in the way that the Lord's Prayer has set us up, it helps put it in the proper perspective and alignment. So when I go and I'm praying his will first and I bring my needs, which are very legitimate, hear me on their own, whatever you need, whatever you got going on, he wants that. He needs to know that. But I posture myself in a way to go, first and foremost, God, this is about you and your name and your renown and your glory first. And then in light of that, God, here's what I need. And he knows your needs before you even bring them to him. But he wants to hear you vocalize it. God, here's what I need. Here's what I need to see you do. And I partner my faith with his power and amazing things begin to happen. All right, so first of all, did, did you notice how the prayer, and he, and, he, and he took this up, and he's like, you know, you're there, and you stand up, and you take a little piece with you because you can't trust God, and you just have to have faith. And he never gets to the point of saying, what if God answers my prayer by saying no, or in a different way than what I want? And what he, what he just said by saying that, by the way, is that you simply just didn't have enough faith. You didn't have enough faith for God to answer your prayer. I do think a little bit later on he will mention that. But again, I would argue along with you that this contributes to the schizophrenia of the evangelical mind. It, it basically, it, it's an out. It's, a, it's an out for every preacher that preaches this sermon that I sit there Hey, I went, I took what your sermon said, and, and I did it, and I prayed this prayer, and, you know, my dog still died. Or, or even worse, right? My, my kid's cancer is not going away. I mean, answer that well. And I've, I've heard this before. Uh, not in the kid cancer context, but, but I've heard this before of like, oh, you know, the reason why you're in debt and your bills, you know, you didn't get a bump in paycheck was because you didn't have enough faith. You know, you took what I said, but you didn't have enough faith. And that's just an awful, awful thing to say. God answers our prayers no matter what. Sometimes it's a different way. It, actually, a lot of times it's a different way than what we want. Or the answer is simply no, right? You're not going to win the lottery. Sorry. You're not going to win. First, you have to buy a, a lottery ticket, right? I'm not just going to blow one in the gutter for you. But but two, you're not going to win the lottery. It, Right, No is an answer, but he makes it to be, if you don't get what you want, it's, it's because you don't have enough faith. Now, secondly, he, he set this up several times. 
And he does this here with the Lord's Prayer. He says, because I've put you first, God, right, with these first three petitions, now I'm going to bring what I need so that you can answer it. And this is something that I've, I've noticed over the years, something I was completely oblivious to until I was watching the, the American classic show, Toddlers and Tiaras. My wife used to watch it all the time, and so it would be on. And there was actually one episode I did watch. turns out this mom and her daughter, they were uh, very Pentecostal. And part of their routine for preparing was every day before the pageant, they would pray. And the mom explains how they pray, how her and her daughter pray. She says, we pray for other people first so God will hear our prayer, bless us, and answer us. That's an incantation. That's not a prayer. Um, That's saying, I'm going to say a certain set of words and the powers that be, you're going to have to grant whatever it is I want. And, And it's this mindset of, well, because I asked God to bless those people first, now he has to bless me. And that's nowhere taught in Scripture. I, I, don't, I don't know where it comes from. I don't know who is the genesis of this, if, if it's part of the word faith movement. But I see it more and more now. And basically, that's what this guy has said that the Lord's Prayer is. Because I put God first on these three things, you know, right? Your, your kingdom come, your will be done. Um, then I can lay down my own personal petitions. Yeah, and God's going to answer them because I put him first. That's putting me first and figuring out a way to God make make God do what I want. In your words, the, the, the literal words might have God first, but the intent of the prayer is you first. Is you first. Hmm. And before I wrap up this morning, I want to address two things that I thought about through this. First, have you ever thought about how bad it would be if God just gave you everything you wanted? I mean, have we thought about that? You would be married to that girl you thought was so cute in kindergarten, right? Oh, Lord, please just let me marry her one day at six years old. And then you saw her Facebook picture and you went, Jesus, you are merciful and kind. 30 years later, that that did not happen, Father. And I thank you for that in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name, we thank you, right? It's true. Women in the room at 16 and that boy broke your heart. You thought that was in the world. Oh, my God. He was the one. He was the greatest one. He's the quarterback. And he's so great. Thank you, Lord. And now he's in jail. And you're like, well, Lord, thank you. Praise you, Jesus. I thank you that that prayer was not answered. Right? Have you thought about that? Because that's what we act like sometimes. I can't believe God didn't do it. I asked for that. I believe for that. I wanted that job. Like I was believing for it. Man, I knew that job was meant for me and I didn't get it. And then five years down the road, you found out that the person who got the job ahead of you, that job cost them their life, cost them their marriage, their kids, like everything, because it would just ruined them. And you go, wow, Woo, thank you, God. I have a guy in my church that happened to one of my trustees. About 15 years ago, he's in the banking world, and he was in line, but they gave it to a younger guy, and he was mad at God for like a year. He goes, you wouldn't believe this, man. He goes, that guy ended up losing his wife. He started having heart issues because of because of the stress of that job. And I went, wow, thank you, God, that I didn't step into that. See, because God's not in the business of just giving us everything we want. You know what song I liked growing up? I liked country music, that Garth Brooks song. Sometimes I thank God for unanswered prayers, right? That's great thought process, horrible theology. It really is. Great thought process, horrible theology. That's what we think. The whole song. At a football game, saw that girl, thought was so great. He doesn't say in the song, he's like, man, she looked a little different. Thank you, Lord, for answering prayers. Like, that's what he's probably saying. 
Doesn't say it in the song. He should. That's what most country songs are about. But he doesn't say that. Like, well, she looks a little different than high school. So, but he goes, God, I thank you for unanswered prayers. Then he says, remember when you're talking to the man upstairs? Just because he doesn't answer doesn't mean he doesn't care. Great thought process, horrible theology. Can I tell you something this morning? God answers every prayer. He's a God who answers every prayer. There are no unanswered prayers. There are always God-answered prayers. And sometimes a God-answered prayer is, no, no, not now, not in this season, no. And so sometimes we don't like that, but that's why he goes, the $5 million and the untraced bills on the front porch, one is illegal. I don't do that. That's a sin. I'm not where sin is. Two, you don't have the capacity for that. Like, if we could get people to understand, I try to do this a lot in the church, that some people are one-talent people and three-talent people and five-talent people, and God knows your capacity and how much you can handle. He's not going to give you over your capacity. So you have to know sometimes when you're praying outside of your capacity, he's going, ah, nope, nope. Now, we can stretch you and grow you to that, but not right now, no. Doesn't mean I don't pray big prayers. Look, I'm believing big things. Since we set our feet in Tampa, next to Home Depot, there is an old Sweet Bay grocery store that's been sitting empty for six years. And every day we drive by it, now my daughters do it. They go, there's our church. There's our church. There's our church. We go, Tim came down for the first time. He goes, man, you saw that building across the way next to Home Depot? I was like, buddy, we've been praying for that. Yeah, And so don't, don't not pray big prayers. But here's the deal. If we never step foot in that building, it doesn't mean God didn't answer the prayer. It just means God goes, if you thought that was great, just wait to see what I got on the other side. Just hold on. So that was a no for now, but just wait and see. So he always answers prayers. You need to grasp that this morning. And that's why it says in there, you understand better, that when you ask me for anything in my name, I will do it. Okay, so two things. That is the verse that he's supposed to be addressing, right? Okay, so he did circle back around. And he did mention what you said earlier, that a no is an answer to prayer. And I like the way that you said it in that God does not typically answer us in the way that we expect, but that doesn't mean that he's not loving and that he's not caring and all of that. This guy just goes on and on and on and on and on. It's just so, it's, there's so many things that are flying at you and flying at me, and it's just like, you just let him spin this yarn. Mm -hmm. Even though, I think it's hilarious that he notices that the Garth Brooks song uh, has bad theology, but he doesn't recognize what he's been spewing for the last however many minutes is bad theology, too. Well, one, I was not six years old praying to marry people. You clearly never met Christy Blackwater. I have no, I don't know who that is. She was in my kindergarten class. <laughs> I wanted to marry her. <laughs> All right. Um, but when he's like, he's like, now you see her Facebook page, you know, and 30 something years later, you're like, oh, you know, thank, thank you. You're basically saying that God doesn't care about that person. Oh, about the other person who took the job and and their life fell apart because of the job? Yeah, yeah, God God doesn't care about them. They're obviously not a Christian, um, and and God saved you and let that person's life just just go straight to pot. Who cares that God so loved the world? Um, God didn't love that guy. God didn't love that girl, and he saved you from that. And, and but he threw the other guy under the bus or to the wolves or what have you. Yeah, yeah. And so if you if your eyes were just open, you would see how much God just loves you so much and just hates everybody else. <laughs> um, that's what he just basically he said. He it's, did. That's what he basically said. Yes, Jacob, I loved Esau. I hated. That didn't mean that Esau's life was crud. 
I mean, when Jacob lead, meets Esau later, Esau's got... He's a very successful man. Yeah. Yeah, it just meant that the promise of the Savior was going to go through Jacob, he not Esau. He passed over. He passed over yep. Esau. Yeah. Because he was the firstborn son, you would think that he would normally get the yep. blessing or get yep. uh, get the promise. No, he passes over him. Now, that's a great point, Pastor Ross. I mean, to think that uh, God is specifically throwing people uh, to the wolves or to their demise so that you will recognize later on, oh, that's the reason God didn't want me to do that. Yeah, yeah, I mean... What if that guy would have been wildly successful? Yeah. I guess God really hated the Egyptian that Moses murdered and didn't want him to find salvation at all so that Moses would have a reason to leave and then God could bring him back to let his people go. I don't, I don't think it works that way. I, I think what Moses did was, was pretty much a, a horrible, horrible sin. And he had to face up to that. Of, of all people for God to hate, you would think Cain, right? Cain killed Abel. And, you know, God puts the mark of Cain on Cain. And everybody's like, oh, that's, that's for Cain's shame completely forgetting what why god put the mark on there for protection yeah anybody does anything to you i will bring back sevenfold god is protecting a murderer wait 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 what god answers prayers he will do it here's what i want you to take away if you hear nothing else the problem is we don't get to define how he'll do it we don't get to define how he'll do it he says whatever you ask in my name i'll do it we don't get to define how he'll do it, but he'll do it in his timing, in his way, in his will. He'll do it. We just don't get to define it. This is what we have said. You don't get to define it. You go to your loving father as dear children. Go to their dear father. Mm-hmm. You do so in all boldness and confidence, as the small catechism teaches us. But you leave, you leave it there with the Lord. He finally said something theologically accurate. God defines it. So that leads me to the second thought I wanted to make sure I got in, because some of you are thinking, hey, Matt, I pray like that. I did everything. I posture myself the right way. I believe those things, man. I have come to God in that place of humility and believing that. And I prayed for my dad to get healed of cancer, and guess what? He died. So God didn't do it. My son had leukemia and passed away. He didn't do it. We lost our house to foreclosure, so he didn't do it. Like, that's what you're thinking. Like, I did all those things, but God didn't come through. He didn't do it. He didn't do it. And I want to help you real quick, especially in this area of healing, to understand something. I've built my theology on this in four ways, and there's scriptures to back it up. I believe there are four ways that God will heal someone. One is instantly. He heals instantly. We've seen in scripture, woman with the issue of blood, it's gone. Blind, seeing, deaf, hearing. He does it instantly. You know those stories. Somebody had cancer, went back, it was gone. He heals instantly, and we pray for every one of those. I'm always praying instant. God, will you touch them? Will you heal them? On the name of Jesus, you're the only one who heals. You're the only one who can do it. So will you heal them right now? I want them to go to the doctor right now and get another scan and see if it's gone. So we believe in instant. And that's how he does it sometimes. But he also heals medically. He heals medically. Hear me this morning. Jesus is okay with doctors. Paul had one on his team. Luke was a physician. He told Timothy, I would take a little wine for your stomach. Like he's okay with medicine. Like there's medicinal healing sometimes. Look, we saw one in the last week. 
Sam Ivey went into a doctor and they medically brought healing to him by removing that tumor. Now listen, had Sam just gone, I ain't going to the doctor. I, I got a God who heals. I'm not going in there. And God goes, hello, the doctor was part of the healing. Like that's part of it. And it's not that you don't have faith for the instant. Like I believe God's going to touch my body. He's going to do it. But it's sometimes he goes, hey, can I just partner your faith with this guy that I gave 12 years of medical experience to? I've trained him well. His hands are my hands. He's going to bring healing to you. Can you do that? Like sometimes it happens like that. So you need to hear me this morning. He heals medically as well. Here's another one, though. He heals gradually sometimes. Remember in Scripture, we see in Mark 8, there was the blind man. He spits on his eyes, one, gross, right? Could we have chosen another way? Just spits on the eyes. You're like, oh, gosh, I, I, okay. Puts his hands on it. You're like, that was gross. Could we have just prayed? And so he's doing that. Then he goes, what do you see? The guy's like, well, I think they're people, but they kind of look like trees walking around and not real sure. And Jesus, all right, let's try it again. Then he goes, now what? Oh, they're people. So it's gradual sometimes. Sometimes it's a process of me walking it out that it brings healing. Guess what? Sam's still in the gradual healing. We talked this week, and he said, yeah, we just got to pray for some hormone levels to come into check and some different things, but my healing's on the way. I'm walking in my healing. It's gradual sometimes. And the problem is most of us are really good with those three. But it's the last one we don't like. Because guess what? He heals eternally. And that's the one we don't like. Because we go, whoa, whoa, yeah, yeah, but my prayer was, God, would you heal my dad of cancer? And he died. Can I just encourage you this morning? Guess where there's no cancer? In heaven. Guess where there's no sickness, no disease, no more broken bodies, no more hurting people? It's in heaven. So sometimes he goes, oh, no, I healed him. You just don't get to define how I'll do it. Now, outside of the yelling, we don't have any problem with what he said here. One problem. What's the problem? Your faith and my power through the doctor. Partnering. Partnering, yeah. coupling. And there's a word for that. And that's called synergy. Yes. Yes. Tell us what synergism is. Synergism is, in the theological sense, man combining with God to accomplish something because one cannot do it on their own. It's a false teaching. It's kind of an incantation type thing. If you get the right pose, God's going to work through you or do what you ask. It's just, my gosh, like... I'm surprised they didn't kill the mic already. Oh, are you kidding? They love this guy. They love what he's throwing down. I guess my thought is this. We are all inadequate when it comes to prayer. Uh, and maybe I shouldn't say, uh, you know, we. You know, I am inadequate. I'm not pleased with my, my prayer life. So my thought is, God is so kind he can work through our misunderstandings of prayer and does so. Yeah, this, this is why the Spirit groans. Or, you know, when Paul says, when you don't even know the words to say, the Spirit is groaning. Or it right. says, uh, you know, in the small catechism, uh, the kingdom of heaven comes even without our prayer. Right. Yep. So uh, it's those examples that says that God will do what God wants to do even without our prayer or let's say our our. Uh, uh, deficiencies in prayer mm -hmm. with that being said we still can't let this guy off the hook because he is standing in the place of god saying thus saith the lord yeah and he is misleading 
the people in regard to prayer. Yes. Yeah, and, and that's my biggest problem. Like, and, and I want people to understand this. Why, why are we critiquing or criticizing these people? It's not because we believe we're holier than thou. I have deficiencies as pastor. Every single pastor has a deficiency or deficiencies. I'm not a perfect pastor, right? You hold preachers, teachers, pastors, whatever you call them, you hold them to a higher standard because they are, they are called by God to teach the full counsel of God. And if they are screwing that up through ignorance, through malicious purpose, through malpractice, if you will, or malfeasance, they are to be removed from office. This is why Paul says, you know, don't let a new believer become basically a pastor because they might get puffed up with pride because there there is something to be said about having time and experience and not just picking the guy who's new and on a high right oh we're gonna make you a pastor and you have no way to deal with lows or you've never had to really struggle with some of the hard parts of theology you know you've never been job and and you're wondering why god is punishing you type thing and, and we don't know how you're going to react so they've taken this guy who's had little to no theological training and they've made him a pastor to teach people and he's teaching bad theology right now he's teaching a damnable heresy god is dependent upon me god is dependent upon my faith to act in the world but i'll do it you just don't get to define that sometimes and I know, again, we don't like that part of the prayer. We don't like that part of how he'll do it. But this morning, hear me. Your job is to pray big, bold, God-sized prayers. Look, we stand and started our church on Ephesians 3.20, which says, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we could ever ask, think, or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us. Look, we believe God for the immeasurably more all the time. He is a God who is limitless in love, limitless in grace, limitless in power, limitless in healing. That's why we call it Limitless Church. We are limited people, but when we partner ourselves with God, it's limitless what we can do. So we pray big prayers. We believe those things. But we also know when we go into that prayer, Jesus, this is all about you. This is all about your name and all about your renown and all about your glory. So you will do it how you will do it. And no matter what the answer is, we worship you. We celebrate you. We praise you, God, through it. doesn't mean that there's not pain there when somebody's taken away earlier than we thought they should have been. We're walking this out as a family right now. My grandmother just got transferred to hospice at 88 years old. She's the matriarch of our family. She's the one it's been all about. She is the one who's passed the legacy on. But as she sits in that bed, the doctors have said, look, at her age, with her renal stenosis and her heart issues, there's nothing else we can do. And I don't sit there and go, that's the worst. I go, good. Because now that you're out of the way, God gets to work. But here's the deal. We still can pray, God, would you instantly touch her body and get her out of that bed? And we believe that. But at the end of the day, we go, but God, if her ultimate healing resides in heaven, we're ready. Because now there's no more pain. There's no more high blood pressure. There's no more suffering and the things she's going through. So we want that. And through it all, we praise. Yesterday, our girls sat around her bed in hospice. They began to sing to her. Peace, be still, say the words and I will. They're just singing over it. Peace, peace. And her whole countenance changed. We went, that's what this is all about. Jesus, when we allow you to come in the room and allow you to do stuff and get out of the way, it's all about you. 
Look, there is power in the name of Jesus alone. That's why I've put everything on him. I tell people, man, Jesus looked at all of us and he said two things. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. So we've hung our hat on all those things. We're going to preach Jesus till the paint comes off the walls. And we're going to love people like they've never been loved before. And we're going to pray big prayers and we're going to believe big things. And we're going to let God work it out. All right, so the music has already started to play. Uh, this is the uh, emotional appeal, the manipulation technique that we've talked about before. And so, uh, so he's getting ready to close the deal here, probably with an altar call. But, you know, my first thought is after you hear all this gobbledygook, you know, about what they're going to do, you know, it, you, you just want to say, knock yourself out. And I, I think I'm being generous when I say this. This is heterodoxy at its finest. Now, you've even said that some of it is heresy. Yeah. And I don't disagree with you. I'll just say this is heterodoxical living. It's not orthodox at all in any way, shape, or form. In saying that we're just going to preach the paint off the walls and tell people about Jesus and believe big prayers and have huge expectations because our God is is limitless, and this is why we called our church Limitless Church, because we serve a God who's limitless even though we're limited. Knock yourself out. But I would say this. The apostles, if they were to go into a church like this or a, to the church that he pastors, they wouldn't, even, they wouldn't even recognize it. Not only is there no altar, not only is there no true apostolic teaching, but there is just this enthusiastic, felt-need mumbo-jumbo without even pointing people to Jesus, which, in his defense, is probably what he's getting ready to do here as he wraps up his uh, his but, sales job. But the the thing is, the thing is, okay, one, he just way leaned back into the synergy again. Oh, good, the doctors are getting out of the way, so now God can enter, and now Jesus can come in. <laughs> it's just like, didn't he just tell us that that Jesus works through doctors? He did. Like, and that's and that's God's hands. He even said, "I've trained this guy for however many years. These are God's hands." Now that God's hands are out of the way, now God can work. It's so ridiculous. And I feel for him. You know, having had three grandparents that have passed, um, if his grandmother's still alive, uh, you know, I I pray that God's will be done. If if that would be uh, physical, earthly healing, or or spiritual, uh, heavenly healing. Well, wait a second. Did you posture yourself correctly first? No, I don't think I. I'm. I'm. I'm my elbows are on the table. Yeah, I see that. Yeah. So that's. Uh, should I take them off? Yeah, probably. Okay. <laughs> that's hard. But he, man, he made it. He made it about himself. He made it about his kids. You know, like here, here we are. We're going in here, and we're gonna. You know, finally Jesus is gonna get involved, and it, I was just, oh man, like. What, Jesus wasn't involved in the 88 years previous? Oh, well, I mean, he did say that she's the matriarch, spiritual matriarch, I would assume, of the family. Yeah. yeah. I shouldn't expect anything else at this point. Correct. Um, and, and okay, so here we are. We're, we're probably about to get an altar call. Without an altar. So, so let me ask you this. How much did you learn about Jesus today? I learned... Not much about Jesus, but boy, have I learned a lot about this guy. Yeah. I don't know how any of this applies to me. So far, he has not addressed but, but any of those throwing things. throwing an altar call at the end does not fix it. 
Putting a bandaid on a bullet hole. What? Putting a bandaid on a bullet hole doesn't do anything, as as Taylor Swift says, right? Um, <laughs> I don't know. See, no, if, I he don't can know. Quote, if he can quote Garth Brooks, I can quote Taylor Swift. <laughs> okay. Okay. Well, let's see. Let's see what he does here as he puts this bandaid on this bullet hole. Let's see. Uh, let, let's hear together his gospel nugget. And this morning, if you're here, I just want to walk through some things with you real quick to help you understand why when he said, whatever you ask in my name, I'll do it. It's all about Jesus. Hey, look, you need to be saved this morning. I know a name. You need to be healed this morning. I know a name. You need some provision this morning. I know a name. You need somebody to see your family restored. I know a name. You need somebody to come and touch you. I know a name. There is a name above all names. It's the name of Jesus. He's the only one who saves, the only one who heals, the only one who redeems. And when you come to that name and go, this is all about Jesus, in the name of Jesus, he goes, I'll do it. I don't return void when I come in there. When you call out on my name, I'll do it. This morning, church, who needs God to come in and do something? Who needs God to come in and touch you somewhere? Look, I got a name for you, and it's Jesus. Hold on to him. Okay, he's... he's, uh Really trying to get them all riled up here, but uh, haven't heard anything as to what Jesus has done for you yet. Maybe he'll get to it. Let's hope. Look, if you go, Matt, but I've been praying and praying and nothing's happened. Guess what? They marched around Jericho six times. And on the seventh day, they got around six times and they could have gone. That's it. I'm done. I'm not marching anymore because nothing's happened. No pain on the walls. Nothing's chipped. We have to be quiet, which is weird anyway. We're just marching and praying. And then he goes, one more time. One more time around that wall. I'm telling you today, it may be number seven for you right now coming around the wall. Don't you stop. Don't you quit praying. Get around that wall one more time and give a shout of Jesus. And the wall's coming down in your life this morning. Every eye closed and every head bowed. I have to slam this one part of his altar call. You, it might be the sixth time, and you just need to do, you know, they, they could have given up. They were told beforehand, you're going to walk around this seven days, and then on the seventh day, you're going to walk around it seven times, and each time it's going to be quiet, by the way, until the seventh time on the seventh day, then you're going to make a noise, and the walls crumble, and that's when you'll attack. They were told that beforehand. They weren't just out there, like, making this up. Well, maybe we should just walk around quietly today. I mean, it's just Tuesday, you know? We don't know what's going to happen between, you know, Monday nothing happened, but Tuesday might, you know? And if, if it's not Tuesday, it might be Wednesday. Who, who knows, you know? How do you miss that part of the story of Jericho? I gotta take a breath. I gotta take a breath. I don't know where you came in this morning and where you came from, but somebody in this room needs to call out to the name of Jesus. You've tried it all on your own. You've believed it all. You're like, I can do it. I got it. I can handle this. And I'm telling you this morning, it's time to call out on the name of Jesus. If you walked in the building today and you've never given your life to Jesus, today is the perfect day. Don't leave this place without getting right with your Savior. If you're in the room today and you want to give your life to Jesus, you're ready to surrender it to him, I want you to just do something real simple. On the count of three, raise your hand. Nobody's looking around. This is your moment with him. We just want to know who we're rejoicing with the angels in heaven over. One, it's a great day to come to Jesus. Two, he's been waiting on you all along. Three, simply raise your hand long enough for me to say, thank you for that hand over here. Anyone, thank you for that hand. Anybody say, that's me. Thank you for that hand. Thank you for that hand. Anyone say, that's me. Amen. And for the rest of us, I pray we walk out of this building today going, I'm going to believe big things. I'm going to dream big things. I'm going to stand on the name of Jesus 
and knowing that when I do that, he and he alone can do it. I'm going to posture myself. I'm going to pray his will first. And it's about his kingdom. And then when I do that, guess what happens? He meets all the needs because my prayers become his prayers and provision is found. Needs are met because I get the focus off of me and onto him. And then my heart beats in tune with his heart. And God does immeasurably more than I could do on my own. Hey, if you're here, we're all going to say a prayer together so the people that raise their hand don't feel signaled out. Repeat after me loud. Say, Jesus, I love you. Thank you for loving me. Enough to die for my sins. I ask you to come into my life. Forgive me. I want a relationship with you. This is all about you, Jesus. Lord, we thank you for prayed that prayer, maybe for the first time or rededication, whatever the case may be. Lord, we know that we stand in the fact that we can pray in your name and you will do it. God, we're not trying to define how you'll do it. We just stand and believe God's going to do it. He always comes through. You're a right on time, God. And so we thank you for that today. I thank you for this church. I thank you for this house. I pray a blessing right now over Life Community Church. I pray that you do immeasurably more than they could ever ask or imagine. I pray they go in debt-free with extra money to spare. I pray they go in there, and as they get into the First Activity Center, they're going to see you do incredible things. More people in the community coming to Jesus. More people in the community plugging in and getting to find their purpose and their passion for you. Lord, bless this house. Bless Pastors Tim and Harriet. Bless their staff. Bless all who come here and Jesus name and all God's people said no come on all God's people said come on church uh, oh oh man that is that is so painful isn't that hilarious how he ends the exact same way that he began right it's that getting them whipped up come on church you're you're, you're not whipped up enough oh I cannot believe we made it through this sermon. This is exasperating. Man, at one point I thought he was an auctioneer. Oh, there's a hand. There's a hand. There's a hand. <laughs> <laughs> he gave us a recap of his sermon again, but the, the start of this altar call. Without an altar. Felt like the most disingenuous thing. Not that he doesn't believe it, but it wasn't him who was speaking, if that makes sense. Like, like I'm acting a part now. Sure. You could tell when the voice was going to go up this is altar call 101 and so the the pitch the the volume of the voice is going to go up the the emotional plea is going to go up is we're going to have this crescendo and then boom we're going to bring it down real and just bow your heads close your eyes you know just just raise your hand if if you want to get right with jesus yeah. i mean really what does that mean i don't know because he didn't tell me that at all he said one thing about jesus dying for my sins yeah and, and so i mean if you have a cultural context of, of growing up nominally Christian or, or more not, uh, more Christian than, than, than not, yes, you can get it. But as far as the person in the street, I mean, if you said get right with Jesus, how many people would understand what that meant nowadays? I don't know as, as we go towards a more non-Christian population. Man, if I listen to this, and, and my thought process is, this is Christianity. I, I would sign up for the nuns, too. I mean, I, I would just be like, nah, I, I cannot go I, there. I don't need this till I'm in trouble. This was the therapeutic part of moral therapeutic deism. That was a long, weird prayer because I thought it was over because he recapped his sermon. And then he said, and I pray blessings on this church and they're going to do these things you know activity center or whatever and all god's people said amen and people said amen. no 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 we could do a better church and it's just like <laughs> <laughs> and now you have pastor ross 
been formally introduced through the Pluck Chicken podcast. Oh man. You know the part in uh, Billy Madison where they're doing like the Jeopardy thing, and Billy uh, like just has this really dumb answer, and the the game show host or whatever is like, "We are all dumber for hearing this." That's what I feel like. You've been listening to the Pluck Chicken podcast with your hosts, Pastors John Bruss and Devin Kern. To discover more, go to thepluckchicken.com or St. John's LCMS, Topeka.org.